Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Lee Boyd and Rob Beller. Hey, podcast world. (laughs) Oh, no, Rob. You sound under the weather. (laughs) I know. You know what, Lee? It's funny. I thought that you wouldn't be able to tell. Well, you coughed real loud in my ear. But you're you're so perceptive. Yeah. Your perceptiveness is is beyond words. Um, I'm going to need to see my doctor. Yeah? Well... Mm -hmm. You do that a lot. I feel like we end a lot of conversations with, I'm waiting on my doctor's appointment or what are those pills? Don't confuse my doctor for my analyst. Oh, well, there are multiple types of doctors. You never specify which doctor it is. That's true. I just know you have some issues somewhere. I have my counselor. I have my therapist. I have my analyst. I'm married to my therapist. Do you think that's wrong? I don't think that's wrong. Do you? I don't want to weigh in on that. I don't. I don't want to. Not a lot of people can say that they're married to their therapist. I'm married to mine. <laughs> you know what I have here? A cough? I have two Tylenol. Yeah? Uh-huh. Capsules? Uh-huh. Did you, you know Did ones. you know that there's a a kind of insurance called medical insurance? I was aware. You were. Uh-huh. I was. Uh-huh. Is that the is same it, as, yeah, health insurance? It's the same as health insurance. Okay, yeah. I call it health insurance, but well, I'm I'm in California. We call it medical. That makes sense. Uh huh. Because it's way cooler. Yeah, it's something. Uh huh. Because you could misconstrue health, but you, you can't. You, can. you can't do that with medical. Anyways, okay. uh, you digress. Did, did you know that for small businesses, it's like an incredible annual horrible event. You went through it at 470, didn't you? Yes. It was a very tough time. Lots of conversation, lots of stress, lots of strain. Yes. It's a very stressful time. Yeah. Because do you choose plan A that's bad or plan B that's bad? And both of them are bad for different reasons. Right. Or yeah, or plan C that's okay, but cost, you know, an arm and a leg. But at the same time, you cannot be without it. You cannot be without it. And so anybody who's ever bought health insurance on a corporate level knows how difficult and complicated it is. And anybody who's ever consumed it, which of course is all of us, who gets gets our health insurance through a corporate uh, provider or our work, um, has has struggled with with this. And there's there's a company out there. Oh, who's trying to fix this problem? What do you, you know, think about we, that? We ought to have him on the podcast. Should, I think we should. And I, I, here's a big surprise for you, Lee. Okay. We do today. I am shocked. Mm-hmm. I am shocked. Sauna Benefits is there here today. Yeah. Um, to talk about what they do to try to fix the healthcare problem. Yes, we're going to get to talk to Will Young. He's the co-founder uh, of Sauna Benefits. He's going to tell us all about what they do. We're going to get to talk about their mission. We're going to get to talk about 
maybe a little uh, uh, funds that they've raised. We're going to get to talk about the health insurance industry and what it all means and why we should care about it. So I'm excited to have them on. And what an incredible, incredibly tough environment it is uh, to try to come forward with a fix. But they're doing it. They're doing it every day. And we're going to hear all about it today. Well, let's do it. Should we get right to it? Jump right in. Boom. With Without further ado, here is our interview with Will Young, co-founder and CEO at Sauna Benefits. Hey, everybody. We are here with our guest, somebody from a space that we don't usually get to talk about or cover. It's pretty exciting for us. We have Will Young, CEO and co-founder from Sauna Benefits. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome, Will. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. It's great to be here. We've been we've been giving you an unusually hard time about yeah, the name. You have been. You have been. I have. It's. Um, <laughs> I am fairly obnoxious, but usually not as as obnoxious as I've been today. So I apologize for that off right off the bat. But let's start by getting this right. S A N A benefits sauna. That's right. Where does that come from? I have a sense that the name implies something. Yeah, so it means healthy or healthful in uh, a variety of Romance languages, Spanish uh, and the sort of Latin root sanus uh, means healthy. And the reason we picked sauna and not S-A-U-N-A uh, or any other sort of word was uh, at the time we started the company, the domain sauna.com was available. But ah. then uh, a rival company uh, raised a uh, $100 million dollars sauna biotechnology and bought the domain before we had a chance to. So we named the company in part because the domain was available, Yeah, uh, but we're still happy with it. You know, it's, it's, it sticks in your mind. You know, I'm glad we're talking so much about it because, uh, you know, spelling out explicitly and, and saying it over and over again, hopefully you guys and maybe some folks in the audience will remember it better that way. That's right. But, uh, but yeah, it means, it means healthy. And actually, you know, in a variety of languages that are not uh, sort of Latin root languages, it has positive connotations as well. And, so it's uh, it's just a it's a nice word. People tend to have vaguely positive associations with it, and cool. then they become customers of ours, and they've got great associations with it. So there you go. Well, let's dig into the actual company and give us a minute on what it is that your company provides and offers, and what what your company is, and and what it is that you do there, and how you ended up here. So what we do is we offer better health plans for small and medium businesses. So by better, I mean, they tend to be more affordable. They tend to be cheaper than uh, ACA plans, you know, the traditional fully insured plans you'd buy as a small business. Uh, and then we really invest a lot in customer service. We invest a lot in the benefits themselves. We make available uh, sort of more modern care solutions like telemedicine options. And um, we've got an approach to deductibles and co-pays and out of network that are really generous towards patients. So people sign up with us. And they get really great benefits at, at low cost. And we're really focused on the small business segment, which most of the rest of the industry tends to overlook. Um, most of the innovation in healthcare and in insurance uh, in the benefit space is focused on large employers. And you know, we, we're trying to own that, that smaller segment of you know, as small as two employees, as many as a couple hundred, but just the, the lower end of the market where, where they tend to be neglected. And I got passionate about this market because I previously was at an early stage company, or at the time I joined it, it was early stage, uh, called JustWorks that did payroll and benefits for small businesses. 
Right. I just saw not only how uh, much potential there was to innovate in this space, uh, you know, making standardized products that work for small companies, but also just how much need there is for the small business owner. You know, these they're not great products available to them, and so if you can build a solution that that works well for them, it's it's a big opportunity, and you create a lot of value. But yeah, my story. I grew up in Arizona, bounced around to uh, the coasts for a couple schools um, to to go to both undergrad and, and business school, and worked for Google for a bit. Then joined the startup uh, JustWorks, and then had the idea for Sauna, and and now I'm dyed in the wool payroll and benefits guy. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because you're involved in one of the most painful areas that any small business person deals with. Mm. each year, right? There's, I mean, the number of reasonable, I won't even say good, reasonable solutions seem to be very few. I mean, most uh, small business owners would rather have their teeth pulled without anesthesia (laughs) than work on next year's benefit package. Uh, I mean, am I saying that right? Am I exaggerating? Not at all. Yeah. And this was the sort of, uh, I think in order to start a business and, and, you know, build a big business, you need to have a a sort of a secret. And that's not really a secret if you talk to any small business owner, but it definitely is a secret if you talk to the existing health insurance carriers. I think they really just fail to appreciate how, how terrible of a job they've done of building a product that people want. Um, they just sort of take for granted that if they win over the brokers, the brokers will continue to push out very high renewal increases every year. And, and the complexity gets out of control and the customer service continues to get worse and worse. And uh, nobody seems to understand in the traditional business just how bad it's gotten. And so I, I think that's why there's an opportunity. That pain is where my co-founder and I saw an opportunity to build something better. Whenever, whenever I'm looking here at the at the plans and everything, it, it kind of makes me think about different companies have different plans, and you're here to offer great plans for people. Why is it harder for one company to get benefits, or why are benefits more expensive for one company uh, over another? Not meaning the insurance company, but as a, a small business, why would it be more expensive for my small business to, to get benefit and plans than another? Like all insurance businesses, I think sort of generalizing, you model out what the projected costs are for the business, and then you model out your margin and premiums and you sort of pick a a sustainable margin. And uh, the truth is a lot of our healthcare dollars uh, are spent on older people. Different geographies have very different profiles for the average cost per person. Uh, And that's a function of uh, provider concentration, right? So some hospital systems are essentially monopolies in different regions and they charge a Mm -hmm. lot more. And so what you do is you look at the demographics, age, sex, and then uh, the geography, zip code. And the the difference in rates ends up being pretty dramatic, whether you're writing, you know, a single male 22-year-old versus a, uh, you know, family with, you know, a 58-year-old woman that's the enrollee, you know, like the price profile looks very different. And then there's a lot of regulation around what you're allowed to underwrite on, depending on what market you're participating in. Uh, but, but yeah, the, the rates vary pretty dramatically depending on what the person and then what plan they want to get. You know, as you raise the deductible, you can lower premiums a lot. So that's why high deductible health plans, people tend to buy those. Are you guys a broker or are you 
an insurance company or an MGA? Yes. Uh, <laughs> something else that's different about us, and I think there are likely players on the the PNC side that are like this. State Farm comes to mind of how they sort of had their sort of integrated captive agents model, um, but we. We have our own captive agents, so we, we're, we're brokers. Uh, we work with outside brokers, but we have our own force as well. We're the TPA, so we're the administrator on these, these plans. And being the TPA is actually quite complicated in, in healthcare because you have to, you know, the, the scope and the volume of claims you process per member is incredibly high. And the complexity of these agreements that you have to manage, both with hospitals, individual practitioners, uh, you know, drugs, you actually have a separate administrative provider called a PBM, a pharmacy benefits manager that does drugs. So administration is actually quite complicated and we're the TPA. And then we're the, uh, the MGU, MGA, we do the underwriting on behalf of a carrier and we bear risk. And just because that wasn't complicated enough, we actually opened a primary care clinic in Austin and we're sort of delivering care as well. So we actually, you know, there are complicated corporate practice of medicine laws that don't allow us to directly own a doctor group, but we have a facility that we operate and a doctor group that we work with to provide services for our, our members. That's amazing. Yeah. It's amazingly complicated, but we believe one of our uh, hypotheses about how you fix this mess that is our healthcare system is if you vertically integrate and you absorb all that complexity, you can then start to rationalize the incentives and start delivering actually better care at lower cost for, for patients. Is that the ultimate goal of sauna is to get people the, the care that they deserve? I mean, what, what is your mission? What is your mission statement? What is your mission that you wake up each day? Why are, are you in business? So that's it. Yeah. Our, our mission is to make quality healthcare understandable, accessible, and affordable. That's what we tell all of our new hires. And it's what we talk about at, at company meetings. I'm relatively new to healthcare. There are people that have spent decades you know, in, the, in this industry. And I was in payroll and I saw this pain that employers were feeling. And I pivoted and I said, okay, well, let's build a carrier that starts with what patients actually need, what small business owners actually need and work backwards into what the product should be. But I've gone on this journey in the last six years since we started the company where you learn about all the things that are broken. And there's people say, oh, how do you fix healthcare? It's like, well, you actually have to fix a couple dozen independent problems. And, And when you learn all these things, you just it's hard to imagine how you go about fixing them unless you unless you really increase the scope of what you do. So, so that's why we're, we're doing so many things. We, because in order to actually solve all these couple dozen problems that plague our system and make costs higher and higher and, and outcomes worse and the experience worse and worse, like you have to touch so many different pieces in order to actually make, make headway on it. What you're saying is you have to bring more under your control, if you will. That's right. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we, we love to partner and we found a few partners that offer point solutions that work uh-huh. really well for us. Like for instance, on the, uh, on the drug side, um, there's all these opaque markups that happen from, you know, if you're a consumer and you go and buy a drug, there's like three or four different counterparties that that claim flows through. And some of them mark it up and charge the plans more. And it's this very unwieldy system that allows bad, bad things. Absolutely to happen in incomprehensible, insane. Yeah, I, I've spent a lot of time studying it, and I still have to like walk through step by step who everyone is and what they do because their their relationships are 
by design, very complicated because it makes it hard to scrutinize and regulate them. Mm-hmm. And so we found a partner on the drug side, a company called SmithRx, that is what's called a transparent PBM. And they just, there's a values alignment on what good care looks like and what affordability looks like. And then they design their pricing model such that they maximize how much we get to see from a transparency standpoint. And then we are on the same side of the table designing what drugs people should get and what they should pay. So we felt we do find vendors that are mission aligned that we partner with, but, uh, but most of the time we don't. And so I think we, we have to take more under our control because there's just a, there's a deficit of providers of all these different services in the market. So aren't you kind of becoming slowly becoming Aetna or Cigna or, yeah, I mean, that's right. Yeah. And they're all, you know, they're all moving in this direction where they're acquiring, you know, if they're just an insurer, they're starting to acquire more and more of these services, you know, right. United like, like what CVS has, has done, CVS and Aetna, but it, you know, you start to see it more and more where, you know, they're starting to acquire, they're, they're vertically integrating as well. Cause they've had the same realization. I think they're, they're motivated in part by making the system better. I think they're also motivated by the fact that you make more money if you have, if you can sell one member more and more products. And those economics work in our favor too. So we can justify this strategy to our investors. But I think our mission is a little bit different than, than how those bigger guys are approaching it. So what is it then that even taking on control of all these things, getting larger, more scale, more aspects of these various and sundry problems, how does that lead to... So more control leads to more affordability is that a theory or is that what you're finding? So I believe more control does lead to more affordability. I think there was a wave of optimism about consumer choice in healthcare that, you know, sort of 20 years ago, people thought if you just give consumers more transparency and give them more choice, then we can sort of have market incentives play out and healthcare costs will come down and that will be the, the saving grace of, of, of healthcare. And that's where you got things like, health savings accounts and high deductible health plans. And there was a company called Castlight Health that, uh, you know, IPO'd and, and there was all this fanfare about how they were making all the prices transparent for, for customers. But then people's behavior didn't change. And when you think about that, you think about, okay, I'm a patient. I go to my doctor and they say, you know, you need to go see a dermatologist. I just go to the dermatologist that they recommend. You know, yeah. it's, there's, there's not much more thought that goes into it because patients are so overwhelmed with the complexity of healthcare itself. Yeah. Complexity you can't reduce. You know, if you've got a rare cancer or you've got a knee injury, you know, you're, you're not an expert in that. And you're never going to like, unless you put in a lot of work, you're not going to ramp your own individual knowledge to the point where you're going to be a, a thoughtful consumer. Uh, and you're probably not going to have that many options available to you anyway. So, and then once you add in things like insurance and sort of what's in network and out of network and what's covered, it just, you just sort of throw your hands up and people don't make very thoughtful decisions through the, through the health system. So I'm much more a believer in what we need to do is supply those patients with guidance and we need to supply them with solutions that we've pre-vetted that we know are good. And so I'm, you know, we give people choice. But through the way we design our service, we try to encourage them to make better choices. And there are most of the time really good care options that are much cheaper than the default path. And so we just try and push people in those directions. And that's where controlling more helps. It's because we, you know, we control more of the interface 
that people use to interact with the healthcare system that allows us to, to nudge them more. And so how is the healthcare system, which is this big, mysterious web, right? <laughs> that, I mean, no consumer understands, right? Like, I mean, just my wife had to have a surgery on her hand and mm. we have a high deductible plan. And so we're past the deductible. Why are we still paying? Well, I mean, there's just all these questions that unceasingly come up when it comes to healthcare. And there's no central answer, <laughs> 1-800-I'll-tell-you-why to call or to, or to, to communicate with. I, I know that you have very good re-upping. I see 73% re-up after year one, which is very high in your industry. How do you do that? So I think part of the answer is we, we give people that, uh, that 1-800 number to call. You know, we, our support line, both you know, phone, chat, email, we try and create that resource that is trusted, responsive, and, uh, and helps clarify and reduce uncertainty for patients as they navigate questions like, like you and your wife had. You know, why am I getting this bill? You know, what we do is we've got the expertise in-house to figure that out and help you negotiate if you need to or push back or decline to pay something if, if you if you shouldn't be paying it. Uh, and so part of it is like, yes, we provide that service and people find that really valuable. And the other side of it is we are quite successful at guiding people to lower cost options and the benefits of that accrue to the population as a whole. Because when we're modeling out, uh, you know, frequency and severity of future claims for our our patients, uh, we can assume, you know, an improvement relative to the baseline because of all the things that we do. So I want to ask a question about your tech, right? Sure. So how does your tech and the tech that you guys have developed, and I assume continue to develop, enable all this crazy spider web of, of scale and breadth to, to occur? Tell, talk to us about that. The tech is important in two ways. One is creating a better user experience. So much of the problem of healthcare is people just make the wrong decision, right? They go to the wrong site for care, they get too much done or too little done. And a lot of that is because there's no way for the people who know what the patient should do to talk to the patient. The patient doesn't have a good communication channel with Aetna, right? And Aetna doesn't seem that interested in communicating with the patient anyway. And so by owning the online experience, the enrollment experience, and then also the support experience, we actually create a way to talk with patients when they need to, to talk with us. And there's a lot in the design and functionality of how we build our, our web experiences that uh, where the technology really matters there. The other part that really matters is uh, on the back end, where we're automating a lot. And I think this is probably a story that's similar to a lot of the other insure tech companies that, that you speak with, but automating claims, automating underwriting, um, making the workflows for our internal teams to manage edge case scenarios as seamless as possible. Like that, there's a huge amount of work that goes into that. Um, and that very complexity of, uh, we've got the drugs and the hospitals and the independent providers, and we're dealing with employers and employees and patients and building automations and tools on the back end that make it easy to manage that, uh, help us scale and help reduce the cost to, to the end user. 
I see back in June or so of last year, you had a big, a big fundraise. Uh, a lot of money came in around 60 million or so it's saying here in the series B funding round. Uh, what was the, the purpose of that round? What did you do? What are you doing with those funds? Uh, how is that being invested in, in your company today? So there's two ways that I think about investing those dollars. The first is growth. You know, we have to keep growing as a business and, and that's what you know, our investors expect. And that's, that's how we ultimately fulfill our, our mission is we have to grow. We have to, uh, you know, be big enough that we actually matter in the, in the healthcare ecosystem. So spending money to acquire customers, uh, that's, that's a big part of it. The other part is investment in our software platform and investment in our operations. We're still small, we're still subscale. And so we just have to, um, keep building the back end to make sure we can support all that growth. And, and that's, those are the two main, main places we put it. Um, you know, I think the, the funding markets have changed a lot in the last, in the last couple of years. And so oh, yeah. you know, we're, we're doing more to conserve that cash and mm -hmm. save it for a, a rainy day in the future. Smart, uh, smart. And so, you know, we're now really focused on how do we get to profitability while still doing, you know, investments in growth and investments in our operations. We're also thinking, it's not such a bad thing to have a chunk of that that you you keep around for uh, a rainy day. hundred uh percent. -huh. So as as a small business owner who for many years shopped for 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 health benefits, <clears throat> there were two primary things that you look for: the coverage and the cost. Um, and it seemed like across many plans, coverages were more similar. Um, like, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, three different companies, all of them could give you the same percentage deductibles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What the, the typically, typically the winning uh, bid went to the lowest price, right? Mm -hmm. Is, is, is that what you deal with every day? And, and how do you deal with that? That's true. I think part of the problem with health insurance today, one of myriad problems, is that people treat it like a commodity. And it's because you assume that the, the customer support that you'll get from Aetna will look similar to the customer support that you'll get from 100%, Cigna. 100%. And you assume both will be terrible. Mm -hmm. You know, correct. So you sort of assume that as a baseline uh, and you assume that pretty much all the doctors you want to be in network are going to be in network. Uh, maybe you double check <laughs> and that's kind of it. So I, I think part of our, what we try and do is for one, we respond to that situation by having a more affordable product. Like we do actually have a product that costs less generally than the incumbents. And so that is an important piece of persuading people to even consider us. We sort of have to play in that world where people do think in more commoditized terms. And then we satisfy their concerns about, oh, is my doctor a network or can I get this drug? You know. Um, but then what we hope is that by experiencing their first year of being on a policy with us, they experience a better service. They experience some of these telemedicine options that we give them that actually change how they think about interacting with healthcare or they go to our primary care clinic. And all of a sudden, it's no longer a bunch of commodities that they're looking at. They're actually looking at a differentiated approach to delivering healthcare and a differentiated approach to meeting the employer's needs on the benefit side. And so we're hoping that in the long run, that's what will differentiate us more. 
Mm-hmm. I still think that we're doing a lot that will save money relative to the incumbent players out there. But I hope the long run, you know, narrative of our brand is it's just something different. It's so much better on these different dimensions that um, they're not looking at it purely as a price play. Do your plans look, I mean, would they be familiar to me or to your typical consumer? Yeah, actually, you know, this is something that I, a hard lesson for me early. Uh, my co-founder and I had this idea early on, you know, health plans are so complicated. We're just going to really simplify them and they're nickel and diming you everywhere. You know, you go and get some procedure done and you're still getting bills for who knows what months after, like, what if we could just make yeah. health insurance way simpler and have a plan where you basically didn't pay anything and everything was covered or you paid like a very transparent, obvious fee and then nothing else. And nobody bought those plans. And it's because the buyers at these companies, the small business buyers, most of them look at their existing plans and then they look at your plan. And they think that's like, it's like an alien. They don't understand it. They say, well, my deductible right. is at a thousand and my out of pockets at 3000 and my co-insurance 60. And what do you do? You know? And so what we learned is that in order to actually sell the plans, we had to sell people things that they were familiar with. And so we've evolved over time to now have a portfolio of plans that look exactly like the ones that you uh, are familiar with, with deductibles and out-of-pocket max and coinsurance. And we do have, we mostly keep the concept of everything is in network. Like that's one way that we treat things differently is we treat our plan doesn't penalize you for going to a doctor that we aren't already contracted with. Like we cover you the same, whether you Mm -hmm. see one of our doctors or, or a doctor of your choosing. So that's one place where we try and be more generous and we try and simplify things as much as possible. But yes, the, the structures look very similar. What about, I I want to talk just a second about virtual doctor visits and, and telehealth during COVID. That was what we did. That's all that we could do. But once some of those restrictions went away, people started going back to the doctor and, and virtual visits were, were secondary if I couldn't see my doctor. I feel like a lot of insurance companies are encouraging us to do more of the virtual doctor's visits. So first off, is that beneficial to you if a person like me does a virtual visit? And are, are you seeing an uptick in people being willing to do virtual visits? Yes. And yes, it's, it's so clear to us that there should be way more virtual care than there is today. Like who wants to get in their car and drive and then wait in a waiting room. And actually a lot of the problems come back to the reimbursement system. There were rules during the pandemic that allowed a doctor to get reimbursed similarly for a virtual visit as uh, an in-person visit that have expired and not renewed. So there were sort of these emerging provisions that allowed both doctors and insurance carriers to push people more to a, a virtual care context. And uh, basically, the payment systems have this sort of legacy effect where it's preventing people, it's it's disincentivizing, disincentivizing. Uh, providers from offering virtual visits. Um, there's also a problem where a lot... It, this happens when there are technology shifts, when there are platform shifts, you know, from, uh, you know, mainframe to PC to mobile to, you know, people take what worked in the old era and they try and do it in the new, in the new medium. And it doesn't really make sense. You have to evolve what you do to match the medium. Like when uh, television came around, the first shows were just radio shows that you watched 
people do. And, and, you know, and then eventually you learn that, oh, you can embrace the television medium and do something different. The same thing needs to happen with virtual care where, you know, actually I should be able to text my doctor or do a short visit or, you know, chat with people of different specialties. And, but the billing system has uh, what are called procedure codes. Like the entire industry runs on these procedure codes and there's mm-hmm. a procedure code for an office visit. And there's not really an easy way of translating that billing system of CPT codes into a virtual care context that allows for people to experiment with different modes of care delivery. And so this is another reason where controlling more gives us a big advantage is because if we can control how the provider is billing the payer, we're someone agnostic to it. We're just going to try things, try and figure out what actually works for patients using virtual delivery. And then we'll, we'll set up that practice, but it's hard for an independent physician to just start practicing with a lot of virtual care because there's not a clear reimbursement mechanism unless patients want to pay out of pocket for some like concierge medicine or something. Right. So I, I really think that the problem is not telemedicine or virtual care. The problem is our reimbursement system and our regulatory environment doesn't allow people to move to virtual care. How tragic is that? It's so tragic. I mean, it's, it's frustrating. It's terribly tragic because you know, you have the, like you have this log jam to get in to see particularly particular specialists, right? And that could be cleared with the wave of a hand, right? That more care could be available, better, you you can make the case better care. I I had a bad, I had a sinus infection recently, perfect uh, candidate for for a virtual visit, right? But my doctor didn't want to see me virtually. So I had to like you said, get my car, get up, go. Right. And you want to know what? He didn't even look (laughs) inside of my head. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You know, at the end I said, aren't you going to look? Right. He said, no, I don't need to. Here's your prescription. So So part of the problem is also doctors themselves, like all of us, are habituated to a certain mode of caring for patients. They've gone through medical school and residency, and they've had, you know, years, decades of practicing in a certain way. And like anybody, it's hard to change how you, how you practice uh, something like that. And so that is part of the problem too. It's the billing side, the regulatory side, and then getting individual doctors to change their behavior is, is quite difficult. Um, but it, it'll come in time, but it is, it is, Unfortunately, it will take a lot longer than it would in a more dynamic market for this to roll out. So I want to I want to ask you about that. Like when you and your co-founder or whoever, your team, are sitting yeah. around fantasizing about, boy, if we could blow this up, I'm sure you have mm. a vision of what it should be. Mm. I assume that you're kind of trying to work in that direction which must be incredibly difficult inside of this system that exists. That's very protective of itself, not changing. Right. And we know from the insurance, we work in the insurance industry also a whole different area, but there's a lot of motivations that are the same. And that is, we don't want to change things because this is my job. Right. So what do you guys see when you, when you let your imagination go, about how this, what this should look like. And I, I know that's a vast question, but in, in some talk mm. about that, if you would. 
you know, it's a, it's a political, uh, football to sort of say, you know, what, what should our healthcare system be? And I think you could sort of generally summarize people on the left think that we should have a lot more government run stuff, single payer, single payer system, or people on the right that think more free market, you know, get regulation out of it. And, and there are good examples around the world of countries that have done things on both extremes. You know, most European countries are on some form of single system, single payer market. Um, a lot of conservatives will point to Singapore that has basically everybody's on a high deductible health plan in the country and cost and quality of care are way better than in the U.S. And so you can point to success stories in either. So I don't know if I have sort of a, you know, if I could build it from scratch, what would my system look like? I think uh, I think there's efficiently run versions of, of different philosophical approaches out there. Um, I think more about what can we do within the system that we have? And I do think that rationalizing the incentives between payers and providers by vertically integrating, I think that's the answer. Like I think about who does things well in the US and Kaiser is the first you know, health insurer that comes to mind. And I don't know if either of you have had interactions with the Kaiser sort of health system that they've got in California in particular, I think does is quite quite a good job. Or people sign up for Kaiser and they're Kaiser patients for life because they get this sort of longitudinal care. That you know, the people have complaints. It's an HMO. It does restrict some of the things that you do, but um, in general, they are able to deliver uh, better care at lower cost for the most part. And I think they do that because they're they're more vertically integrated. So that, that's the model that we think about. It's Kaiser, but with a modern technological bent. Like that's that's where we're trying to go to. Um, Answering sort of fixing all these problems specifically, I, you know, we could dive very deep on just very, you know a very tiny part of healthcare. There's a lot of complexity under the hood there, but at the highest level, I think rationalizing the incentives across insurers and providers and patients, I think that's the that's the solution. Well, we we can let you go without asking you a little bit about your background. Um, we don't talk to a lot of people in healthcare who started their career at William Morris. Ha, you know, William Morris. I'm not going to ask you for your Oscar picks. Don't <laughs> worry. But, uh, but uh, that's an interesting place to start. And, and, and YouTube as well. Um, Neat uh, jobs. Yeah. How did you get, how did you get pulled from? Neat jobs in- and then to insurance. You know, I made a mistake in the early part of my career where I thought, that jobs that looked cool on the outside would be cool on the inside. And William Morris, you know, now sort of Endeavor, William Morris Endeavor, um, looked so cool on the outside. They make, you know, they, they all the movie stars are coming in and out and the directors and writers. It's, it's a talent agency for the people in your audience that might not, might not know it. And it's top two, you know, I think it's probably got a chip on its shoulder that CAA is, is generally more number one, but it's, it's what, uh, the show entourage was based on. Right. Uh, Ari Emanuel, uh, who runs Endeavor now. Um, and I thought it'd be amazing, but it's, it's a grind. It's a grind I found. And I, I found I didn't have the passion for, you know, most of the things that make money in Hollywood are not the things that I was passionate about. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was interested in more highbrow sort of films, it turns out reality Art. TV Art. and superhero movies are the things that make right. all the money. And that's, you know, as a business, that's where the, the resources of the agency went. And then the other side, it's, it's an industry that's not growing that much, you know, and 
maybe the dynamics have changed a little bit now with the dawn of all of these uh, sort of digital, uh, you know, video streaming services. Maybe they've expanded the sort of the shelves that are available, the shelf space available. But at the time, it was like there were only so many TV channels and only so many movie theaters that could play so many movies in a year. And so it was really a zero-sum game of who's going to get their clients into the few productions that, that were happening that year. And uh, or not few, but the number of productions. And it was cutthroat. It was cutthroat. The cultures weren't great. And I just never, I never loved my time there. Um, and then I jumped over to YouTube. Uh, I went down the street. I was actually working in Beverly Hills, working on content partnerships for YouTube. So I took my little bit of Hollywood experience and, and brought it over to, to YouTube. And the, the technology mindset is just so much more expansive. You're not operating in a zero sum world. You're operating in a positive sum world where actually there are far more rewards for innovation and creativity than there are for, you know, stabbing the guy next to you in the back so you can get your actor that job on the next, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Disney show or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I, I, that just resonated so much with me that I wanted to pursue that. So I love, I got, I fell in love with technology as a business, uh, at Google. And then I fell in love with boring B2B, you know, at that time I was really focused on SaaS, you know, software as a service, but I got, I fell in love with those businesses because I think my mind just works well. You know, I understand, you know, you're paying too much for health insurance and you don't like the customer service. Well, if I gave you health insurance that costs less and had better customer service, would you buy it? Yes. Great. You know, I I can understand sales and I could understood how you build a company. And actually I find the companies that look boring on the outside are often the most fulfilling on the inside. Mm. And at least that's been true for me. Mm. And so my, my lesson from Hollywood is, uh, you know, just because it, it glitters doesn't mean you want to you want to be in it. Just because it's glitters doesn't mean it's gold. That's right. Not all the glitters is gold. Um, we wish you all the luck on uh, on on putting out a product that is uh, better and cheaper. So often in doing our podcast, people talk about the problem. Right. They talk about the problem that they found and the problem that they're dealing with or the problem that the population had that they're that they're trying to serve. I thank you, honestly, for for taking on this problem. It's an enormous, terrible problem. I mean, people in our country are not getting service because of the system, how the system is built. And I mean, people are literally dying because it's not built to really help as many people as it possibly can, unless you have money. And so, um, thank you. (laughs) I mean it. Thank you. Thank you for taking it on. Well, I appreciate it. It's, it's, uh, there's some degree of of altruism in it, but uh, I do think, um, I share that perspective that it's just everybody has everybody has a a story about an interaction with the healthcare system that and it it tends to be a story that is deeply important you know a loved one that mm-hmm. has passed away or struggled mm-hmm. and uh, and almost all those stories I mean there's stories of amazing interactions with care delivery professionals with nurses and doctors that do amazing work but then the system is just this ominous presence in everyone's interactions and. Uh, I do hope that we we make an impact on that. You know, give us some time and, and we'll get there. Well, we'll be watching you. And 
You can go ahead and spell your name S-A-N-A. That's fine. (laughs) Thank you, Rob. We're okay with that. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you for being with us and, uh, and, and we wish you all the best. Thank you, Will. Thanks, guys. Boy, talk about going after a big problem. Crazy. Huge problem. Huge problem. Um, and what a I, tough industry. I mean, you have behemoths in that industry. And and so a startup, a startup is a fantastic idea, but they have some great funding that's come in to help yeah, them along the way. Yeah. Uh, I am excited to see where they go. They have, uh, they're in a lot of states. They're moving and shaking. Super smart people. We got to meet Tanner and Lindsay along uh, with Will today. Um, really enjoyed that that conversation. Yeah, they have, um, you know, great companies behind them who are uh, doing good things. But um, I I wish them all the best because they are going after a not only a, not only a problem that matters economically, but also per you know on a human level. And yeah, uh, you got passionate there at the end. Yeah. Um, so we big thanks to Will and his team. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Tanner for being with us today. And, uh, thanks to our intrepid team, especially Alicia Moss, who goes out and finds companies like sauna. But most of all, thanks to all of you for being with us again. And until our next episode, we say goodbye, everybody. 